I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Ezekiel Emanuel, Vice Provost for Global Initiatives and Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania, and David Ash, a Professor of Medicine, Medical Ethics and Health Policy, also at the University of Pennsylvania. Doctors Emanuel and Ash have co-authored perspective articles that stake out opposing positions on employers' policies of not hiring smokers. Dr. Emanuel, you note in your article that 29 states have now passed legislation that prohibits employers from refusing to hire job candidates because they smoke. Can you tell us about the background of those laws and what protections there may be in federal law? Uh, let's begin by the fact that I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> um, and so I'm speaking a little out of turn here. But uh, as far as I understand it, there are no overarching federal protections of smokers related to employment, uh, and this is something that's uh, regulated at the state level. Uh, of these 29 state laws, most were passed actually in the early 1990s and were spearheaded by a variety of different groups and sort of uh, uh, crazy uh, uh, alliances. So the ACLU uh, trying to protect individual rights has been a big backer. And um, tobacco lobby, as you might expect, has also been a, a big backer. So we have slight strange bedfellows uh, in this issue. Um, and their main motivation, obviously, from the tobacco lobby is to make sure uh, protect smokers and uh, smoking to maintain sales. Uh, the ACLU is mostly a liberty issue. Dr. Ash, do you believe that the employer policies are on solid legal ground? Yeah, so like Zeke, I'm not a legal expert either, and I think uh, the points that Zeke makes about the strange bedfellows are really uh, interesting. You know, the ACLU came out against these bans back in 98, uh, um, and it really was a liberty issue, just as Zeke mentions. I think what's interesting, though, is that even when the ACLU did this in 1998, they, you know, in their model policy, had an exception for personal behavior that, in their view, was incompatible with the fundamental objectives of the organization. And they used that example largely to think about something like the American Lung Association, which, uh, you know, for example, might have a very legitimate reason to refuse to hire tobacco uh, users. And so, again, that was back in 1998. I think in 2013, we might extend that kind of exception to an argument to hospitals that tobacco use is incompatible with the fundamental objectives of those organizations. But again, I think your question was really about legal issues and uh, you know, not, not a, an area that I'm an expert in. You mentioned uh, hospitals and the American Lung Association. So how did this all start? What companies, what organizations launched the policies and what was their rationale? Yeah, you know, so I'm not sure that the Cleveland Clinic was the first organization to do this, but I think it was the first organization that I became aware of doing this. And I think now there's estimated to be about 6,000 employers in the country that have uh, similar policies. So, you know, I think there are lots of reasons for doing this. You know, there's no question that one of the reasons is financial. So it's widely understood that tobacco users cost employers more and perhaps a lot more. And lots of companies pour money into smoking cessation programs for their current employees who smoke. And clearly one of the reasons that they do that is that it is better for them financially to have employees who don't smoke than to have employees who do smoke. But um, clearly money is not the only reason for these policies. I think that companies, you know, 
genuinely want to see themselves as leaders in their communities, and policies like these provide a chance to signal that leadership or to amplify those messages. And I think that's probably true even more so for companies that are also healthcare organizations. And these employers are really, in my mind, on much stronger ground when it comes to sending messages outward and into their communities about issues related to health. Dr. Emanuel, in your view, do healthcare organizations represent a special case? I would agree with David that if you're not a healthcare organization, your main rationale is uh, we want to save money. Uh, you may have the rationale also that we really want to care for our workers. That would lead you to a different uh, result, not prohibiting hiring them, but uh, to care for them, which we'll get into in a second. But clearly, uh, a lot of healthcare organizations want to signal that they are uh, different and their justification frequently includes what we call a symbolic justification, the justification that we're an organization that stands for health and we shouldn't have uh, people who smoke on the job. Um, And the WHO certainly uh, has that uh, view. Uh, They said when they released their policy that the WHO is at the forefront of the global campaign to curb tobacco epidemic. The organization has a responsibility to ensure that this is reflected in all its work including in its recruitment practices and in the image projected by the organization and its staff members. Um, And that was the justification they used, that symbolically it would be bad for anyone at the WHO uh, to be smoking. Um, It's very unclear that that does translate and that people do see that symbolic value. You might also consider that the symbolic value would be we're very harsh uh, employer and we don't really care about people who end up smoking. Um, And so I think it's not clear how the symbolism actually goes. You both note how hard it is to quit smoking. Dr. Ash, is that the crux of this debate about policy, the extent to which smoking is a voluntary activity? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And really, there is no question that one important part of this debate centers on the nature and extent of personal responsibility, particularly in this particular setting. You know, so the vast majority of smokers want to quit. And I will guess that most of them wish they had never started smoking in the first place. Um, And while it's far from impossible to quit, you know, most smokers have a really very hard time quitting. And it's like the old joke, you know, uh, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it dozens of times. Uh, You know, so it is, if it is possible to quit, and it is possible to quit, um, then I guess one way to see these anti-tobacco hiring policies uh, in part is as a way to help provide some additional motivational help to quit. Um, That's not the only reason these policies are in place, but it's certainly one of them. And these policies really might in the end, in a kind of consequentialist way, lead to a situation in which fewer people are suffering the burdens of tobacco. Dr. Emanuel, do you agree that this might be an additional motivator to quit, or does the fact that nicotine is addictive render these policies discriminatory? So the first thing I would say is that they're addictive is background information. It's not the justification for our opposition to these uh, non-hiring policies. Uh, But I do think it's important for everyone to be clear. uh, Almost 90% of people who start smoking have their first cigarette before they're 18. Uh, It's not a, you know, that doesn't occur by accident. A lot of it occurs because uh, of advertising uh, and people pushing uh, various uh, uh, positions, especially tobacco companies. Second of all, uh, because it's addictive, it's also very difficult to stop. And I think people need to appreciate just how difficult it is 
if you take 100 people uh, who want to stop, who are into the stopping, uh, three to five of them will be able to quit. Um, and even when you provide incentives, as, as uh, uh, one of Dr. Ash's co-authors did in a major study with uh, GE, you can get that up to maybe 10%. That tells you how hard this is to do. And therefore, the voluntariness, the fact that it began before people were fully responsible and is addictive and therefore very hard to quit, I think is uh, uh, telling. And therefore, we should not be so judgmental that, oh, it's just a lifestyle thing. The second thing I would say is that, uh, like David, uh, We think that the most important thing, like everyone I think in this field, you know, I'm a doctor and we think the most important thing is to get the smoking rate down. The question is, what's the most effective way? Is being punitive and not hiring people going to be an effective way? Uh, uh, We would need data. Uh, To the best of my knowledge, there's simply zero data, certainly zero data that would be publishable in the New England Journal or stand up in a court of law. Uh, The implication uh, that David and, and uh, citing the Cuyahoga County experience, that's not data. That's just you know two data points with no controls and no nothing. Um, I wouldn't even put it in a paper because we have no idea uh, that it works. What I'm a little upset by is if you really are interested in being efficacious and helping people quit, let's evaluate a program of not hiring. And to the best of my knowledge, there's simply not an evaluation out there, nor is there an evaluation ongoing. And more importantly, the University of Pennsylvania didn't put in an evaluation in its plan to not hire people to see if it actually made a difference. Um, And I think uh, if you're going to claim efficacy as your justification for having a no hiring policy, you need to study it and you need to prove whether it's efficacious or whether it might in fact be counterproductive because I could easily imagine it could be uh, counterproductive. Remember, most of the people who are smoking want to quit. Um, they're already motivated. And I think uh, this punitive thing is not likely to work, whereas I do think a lot more support and trying to find the best combination of support, financial incentives, uh, removing financial barriers is probably a much more uh, important way to go. Dr. Ash, in that regard, you point out that quitting smoking has immediate costs in the form of nicotine withdrawal, but delayed benefits in terms of better health. And so you suggest that anti-tobacco hiring policies could make the benefits of stopping smoking more immediate. Given that those benefits aren't physical, would they counterbalance the downside? Yeah, so I think that question there is, you know, underlies a lot of the policy decisions that people are making in different companies, you know. So it's clear that smokers get great health benefits from quitting smoking. Um, and most smokers know that, and they want that. Uh, they want to quit. Um, but those benefits are really very much in the future. And what's daunting is that the costs of quitting are right now, and those costs come in the form of the symptoms of nicotine withdrawal, which does reflect the addictive properties of that drug. Um, so a lot of the work that I do is in the area of behavioral economics, and one of the most important lessons from behavioral economics is that people really do focus much more on what is right in front of them in the present and much less on what's in their future, even though rationally they know that the future eventually catches up to them. So you know, in the case of smoking, I think the challenge is how can we make the benefits of quitting just as immediate as the costs of quitting to try to level the playing field. And you can think of this in some sense as a behavioral economic therapeutic intervention. So, 
You can do that in a variety of ways, and one way is to provide immediate financial incentives to smokers on the condition that they quit. And um, and Zeke referenced a study that we did, in fact, in General Electric, uh, in which people were uh, paid financial incentives to encourage uh, quitting, and in fact, that approach works um, in that it increases the percentage of people who quit. Um, you know, Zeke also mentioned the fact that even those, you know, when when you look at those percentages in absolute numbers, they're relatively low. So even with that particular program of financial incentives, the quit rate was only about 9% in the intervention group. That means 91% of those people who were highly motivated to quit and received financial incentives were unsuccessful. So that speaks to how addictive uh, nicotine is, and it um, it speaks to the fact that we might want to sort of turn up the heat a little bit on uh, tobacco use and see if we can try some other approaches. And those approaches can include sticks rather than carrots. Um, you know, so policies that increase the insurance premiums of smokers raise the immediate costs of smoking in a way that may offset the immediate costs of quitting. Um, anti-hiring policies are another form of stick that provides some counterbalance. So as you say, you know, the immediate costs of quitting are physical, and these counterbalances are social and financial, but that doesn't mean that they can't work, just as financial incentives um, uh, do work in the form of carrots. So, you know, the trouble is that people generally don't like the idea of sticks. You know, sticks don't seem friendly. And a question you can ask, and I think this is really part of the debate here, is whether the perils of smoking are great enough to justify the sticks we might use rather than alternative approaches that, in my mind, might be less effective. So in my mind, smoking is pretty perilous and would justify ramping this up a little bit, but I think it's a controversial issue. Okay, first, um, uh, let's... Let's be quite clear. I'm an oncologist, you know, so I'm just as much against smoking and trying to get people to quit. So we're all on the same page. It's not like I'm happy about people dying from a preventable cause of cancer or other lung diseases. Um, And in that context, one would like to have some data that, in fact, this penalty, not hiring someone, at all translates into efficacy about quitting. And there's no data. And to jump in as a healthcare organization, in the absence of even suggestive data about this, seems to me to be wrong. And to have a no-hiring policy without rigorously evaluating it also seems to me to be wrong. I would say the other thing is there's lots of reasons to think a no-hiring policy is going to backfire. You end up with people who are unemployed, which we know increases the chance that people are going to smoke, with no support structure, uh, no ability to uh, uh, access uh, without a lot of their own effort uh, other smoking cessation and uh, activities. So it seems to me if we're all agreed that you want to try to help people uh, stop smoking, we would need to have some preliminary idea that this intervention of not hiring people has any modicum of actually helping the people who you're not hiring. And I find that hard, very hard, to fathom what that causal link is going to look like. And let us remember, you know, one of the things behavioral economics tells us is that we all discount the future, and we discount it at a pretty high rate, and the poorer you are, the more you discount it because you just don't see. Remember, the the harms of smoking occur in 20 years. They don't occur immediately. You actually get a nice kick immediately, and that makes it... Uh, very hard to quit. And the idea that that somehow we're going to reduce that discount rate by not hiring people, I think, is 
you know, there's no plausible causal link here that I can see and no data. Dr. Manuel, you mentioned the higher rate of smoking among the unemployed. In fact, 45% among the unemployed and 28% among full-time employees. How do you interpret that gap? Do people start smoking because they lose their jobs, or is there some correlation between smoking and other characteristics? Well, we know that smoking, like obesity and like a lot of these quote-unquote lifestyle issues, that there's a very steep socioeconomic gradient uh, in this country, not just economic, but also educational, so that if you're more educated, you're more likely to eat well, engage in physical activity, and not smoke. And there's a lot of reasons uh, for that. The stresses of life, if you're poor and uneducated, are higher. The advertising, as we well know, in the uh, minority communities and other lower socioeconomic communities is higher. Um, uh, So I think it's multifactorial, uh, but we certainly know that uh, these communities are targeted uh, much easier for these people to uh, become addicted and use it before 18. Um, and, you know, it may be the case that being unemployed adds to the stress of life and, and therefore some of these bad behaviors. Dr. Ash, you mentioned carrots and sticks. And on the carrot side, some employers are providing free nicotine replacement therapy and smoking cessation counseling to their employees. Is that an accepted role for employers? And if so, would that then allow employers to also establish health-related rules or restrictions on their employees? Yeah, you know, so, you know, in reality, U.S. employers have been involved in the health care of their employees really since World War II. Um, And so in some respect, there isn't anything particularly new about that. Um, But there's no question that the kind of activity we're talking about right now is really much more intrusive. It's also part, I would say, of a group of activities that employers are using. So the Affordable Care Act, for example, has a provision in it that allows employers to provide rewards or penalties that are worth, up, in some cases, up to 50% of employees' health insurance premiums on the basis of health assessments that would include their use of tobacco or their blood pressure. And so we already see employers who charge employees more for their health insurance if they don't meet blood pressure targets or if they smoke. And, you know, I see this as part of a kind of family or suite or group of services or ideas um, that, you know, frankly, are reflected in the interest we have in population health these days. You know, I think that the shift in thinking toward population health is very valuable, but one consequence of that shift is that it's encouraging a view that health is no longer just something about doctors and nurses and hospitals and patients, but um, across a whole new set of stakeholders uh, who might be involved in the health of communities. That includes people who run, you know, farm stands with uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. It includes mayors of some very large cities, um, and it includes employers. So I think we're seeing many, many more stakeholders um, in the healthcare space. Part of that is in a, a view toward population health, but part of it is reflects the fact that this is a kind of tangled web of a social enterprise. And some of those you know, some of those stakeholders seem foreign or new uh, to the healthcare arena, but um, uh, they're certainly entering uh, entering that arena. Dr. Emanuel, again, carrots. You describe the negative reactions that some non-smoking employees have to any kind of reward for coworkers who quit smoking, and you attribute them to the non-smokers' sanctimonious beliefs that it's their own willpower that has kept them from smoking. Is that reasonable to assume that people who chose never to start smoking were just lucky? Well, uh, I do think that there is some sense in which it is uh, luck. I mean, 
none of us chooses what family we're born into and what privileges we get from that family, whether it's in terms of child rearing or uh, proclivity to addictive behavior or what community we're in, therefore what we're exposed to in terms of advertising and availability. So I do think in that sense, it's very much a result of luck. The second thing I would say is that we tend to be a little hypocritical here, as our article points out, about what we're going to uh, stigmatize and what we're not. Now, if the main justification, which I I think is, you know, it's costing us and uh, these people don't have willpower. Well, let's look at other things that cost uh, money, you know, skiing uh, or riding motorcycles or other things where the accident rate is going to be high, the costs are uh, high, people choose to do these kinds of activities, uh, and yet the uh, costs, certainly the health costs, are socialized to the rest of us. Um, it does seem to me there's a little, uh, we're a little uh, quick to talk about, oh, well, we, you know, we'll focus in and stigmatize smoking, but these other activities, uh, we won't, even though they raise costs for everyone else in our insurance pool, we're not going to stigmatize. And I think that's a bit un, uh, inconsistent uh, position, and I think we need to be at least a lot more consistent. If we wanted to penalize everyone for everything that they were uh, doing uh, that had a cost imposed on other people in their employer group or in society, um, and I think it's a little too easy to be quick on the smoking one, and, uh, and I do think that judgment does rest too easily that this is voluntary uh, without recognizing that it's not voluntary and a lot is dependent upon the position to which you're born, which you don't have control over. Dr. Ash, you mentioned population health. To what extent do you think private employers are responsible for the health of the larger community? Yeah, I guess I don't have a single position on whether private employers are responsible um, for the health of a larger community, but I do think they have an ability to take an active role. And I think a large number of employers see community benefit as at least part of what they're engaged in. Um, the trouble is if an employer's idea of community benefit is very different from your idea of community benefit, um, you might want to take a very different position. But, you know, employers are, you know, an important part of our communities in some areas may be dominated by a single employer uh, that completely you know, in many respects, defines the social structure of that area. And in other areas, that's not the case. There's a more diversified uh, employer base. But there's no question that employers are an important sort of civic institution that we have. We rely on them for all sorts of things, and some of them can use their muscle in one direction or another. Dr. Emanuel, despite your opposition to these policies, to what extent do you think that they will change social norms, that they will continue the denormalization of smoking? Well, it's pretty denormalized already, and I'm not sure we're going to go much further uh, in that. And again, I'm I'm all for denormalizing it. I'm all for saying this is, you know, socially uh, uh, unacceptable, and we don't, as a society, endorse it. Um, and I do think that is very different than saying, you know, especially if you started when you were under 18, um, and uh, when we continue to accept the fact that cigarettes can be sold, and, and also the fact that, as David pointed out, most people uh, who are smokers want to quit, the vast majority, and probably do regret that they ever started. But, you know, it does strike me a little funny that we have this quote-unquote effort to denormalization, uh, often by the same employers who sell cigarettes. So take Walmart, 
right? They they aren't hiring workers or they're penalizing workers, and yet they sell cigarettes. I mean, that just seems to me to be an inconsistent uh, policy and a veritably incoherent policy. We want to make money on the cigarettes, but we're also going to uh, stick it to our workers, especially relatively low-paid workers. I would also uh, uh, point out that there are two motivations an employer could have. One could be, it's good for the community, we want to help. And then, again, you would need data that not hiring people who smoke is really going to be good for your community, as opposed to taking on what I would say is more a policy that Johnson & Johnson has adopted for more than 30 years now of really trying to remove the financial barriers, having a corporate culture that supports not smoking, you know, making whatever efforts there are available. And we know that can work because Johnson & Johnson, they have a, uh, I believe their smoking rate is somewhere in the uh, 4 to 5% rate compared to a national average of uh, 18 to 19% among adult Americans. Um, now, part of that may be that they have a high-paid workforce, but part of that's also the fact that they've had these worker wellness programs not linked to punitive measures for a very long time, and it's very inbred in the corporate culture. Um, I am just worried that that's not the message being sent. We care about your wellness. We really want you to live. We want to be effective in helping you quit. That's not the message of we're not hiring you. Dr. Ash, you argue that these policies have increased the stigma against smoking, but there's a debate about whether stigma can ever be used as a tool for good. There's, for example, a similar argument, even more inflammatory, going on in the realm of obesity prevention. So is there a slippery slope here? Can we pick and choose which stigmas to reinforce and to capitalize on? Yeah, so this is the slippery slope question that's on everyone's mind. You know, so today it's smoking, uh, but what is it tomorrow? Is it alcohol use? Is it obesity, as you mentioned? Is it a poor diet or a sedentary lifestyle? You know, everyone wants to know, you know, just how sanctimonious and moralistic are we as a society going to get? And, um, you know, I would say that none of those other activities has anywhere near the kind of negative effect on health that tobacco has. For no other condition that people tend to mention in this context is the evidence of harm so great or is the extent of harm so great. So tobacco use isn't just another one of those things that people do that isn't good for them. You know, it's a whole different kind of threat. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think we're seeing a uh, change in view uh, regarding obesity, and obesity certainly has a huge threat uh, to the population uh, relative to diabetes and the risk of type 2 diabetes, as well as the uh, cardiac uh, conditions. People are beginning to, uh, to, be, to stigmatize obesity in the same way. Yeah, so I, Zeke, I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, obesity is a big concern in this country and, frankly, in every country. And um, I don't know that this discussion we're having is so much about whether obesity is harmful or not. I think in general it's likely to be a very bad trend, and so I don't I don't mean to be uh, so contrarian. I just think that if we're having a discussion about tobacco, we can be pretty clear right now, and I think we both agree that you know the world would be better off if there were no tobacco in it. And um, so, and I, you know, and maybe that's also true about obesity. Uh, I also think we have an enormous number of Americans, an enormous, uh, uh, a growing number of Americans who are overweight and obese, and we need to be sensitive to those uh, individuals, even as we attempt to address that particular 
uh, uh, epidemic. So, um, you know, I don't mean anything in my remarks to suggest that obesity is not a a health problem. Um, But, you know, at the moment we're focusing in this conversation about tobacco, and I think we can start there. Is there a slippery slope? Um, I think people worry about those because of the the you know comment I made earlier about whether we're going to be moralistic or sanctimonious in our activities, but I think Zeke, you and I, you know, agree on on where we want to go with the goals. I think we're largely talking about different approaches to get there. Thank you, Dr. Ash. Thank you, Dr. Emanuel.